Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet for March 5th, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, it's the beginning of March, and that means, well, a whole bunch of shows are opening. In fact, we got five shows that we talked to that are all opening this weekend. They run through March, so uh, you can catch them all. We're going to talk with people involved with Rooftops, the Shortened Attention Span Musical Festival, Red-Haired Thomas, The Man in the Newspaper Hat, and Tartuffe Crazy Headspace. Also, don't miss our open mic. Uh, it's going to be this Sunday at 8 p.m. Sign-up starts at 7.45. Now, we really need to get some people to come and show up. Uh, we had, for our very first one on last weekend, we had impending doom of the blizzard being announced all day on television. And, well, it kind of kept people away. So uh, we need to keep this going. We need to get some people showing up this weekend. So the people who did come had a lot of fun. And hopefully you all can get down. Uh, 8 p.m. at the Ha Comedy Club. You can find out more details at broadwaybullet.com, the open mic link on the top right of the page. But uh, we've got a lot of stuff this episode, so let's get rolling. On the boards. What's hotter than women in debtor's prison? (laughs) (laughs) The new play Rooftops deals with a dystopian society, debtor's prison, women, and a lot more. It is from the Recchio Ensemble, which has been together since 2000. And we have director Kim Kressel and actor co-artistic director Randy Berry of Recchio here to discuss their new production, Rooftops, which opens March 5th. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. How are you? Good. So, uh, first thing first. Uh, tell us a little bit about Rooftops. Well, uh, as you mentioned, it's a dystopian play, very similar to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale or George Orwell's 1984 and its themes, women in subjugation, totalitarianism, rebellion, um, but this one also has a lot of fried chicken in it. <laughs> uh, fried chicken. Fried mm. chicken, lots yeah. of fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it follows the story of one of the new dwellers on the rooftops, as she's uh, forced to really make a choice about her personal freedom um, or the freedom of all of these women who are being held captive. Now, you said this is the near future, and it's debtor's prison. How near future are we talking about? Because clearly things are looking uh, very near. Yeah, I think it's pretty timely. It's definitely timely. And uh, Carly Maurer, the playwright, has been writing it for a few years, but as America has reached... uh, you know, a uh, greater economic crisis. It's definitely, you know, been been uh, resonating in her writing as we've continued, and it's it's certainly timely and clearly the near future. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Recchio and, and how you guys came together as an ensemble. 
Well, the co-artistic directors of Recchio, there's four of us, we trained together in Miami at New World School of the Arts and moved up to New York together, a big group of us, and decided we wanted to put our own theater up, produce our own work, write our own work, direct it, design it. And um, we've been doing that since 2000. This is a big group of you. Did you all move into like one apartment? Actually, and split four of us did. <laughs> one of the artistic directors was living in what would be considered my closet in a story. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the four of us were living together. We're very close friends, the four core artistic directors, or original ones. And, um, yeah, we've been making theater since. We had started by doing um, adaptations of classics and original work and then, you know, got the guts to just commit to doing original work in 2003, from 2003 on. So how long has Rooftops been in, in development with you guys? Well, Carly has been um, working on versions of the script since 04. 04. And for the last two years, um, we've been working pretty extensively on the development process of it, and I've been able to work with her that whole time, along with many of the cast members that we have now. So they've been reading for her, we've done um, public readings, and there's been a lot of input that's, that's moved it along the way. And we went into rehearsal... Uh, early January. Now, just before you stepped into the booth, you said, oh, we got to talk about this is a green production. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, a really big aspect. Now, of I never aspect. knew the theater to be so anti-green, except for the, you know, all the playbills. Well, actually, <laughs> what, yeah, what, what we realized is that when you don't have a permanent space, um, theater does produce a tremendous amount of waste. And if you don't have a storage space and you don't have your own theater... It's very difficult to continue to recycle materials, but also, you know, the the light requires a lot of power. I mean, there's a tremendous car. So your show's in the dark? The show's not, <laughs> not, in, not in the dark, but um, we have chosen to use primarily LED lighting as opposed to incandescent, which um, uses like 50 watts of power per bulb versus, I think, 575 or something. Um, but we also have our practicals in the show, which are powered by human energy, kinetic energy. We have a bicycle generator that'll power um, the lights. And How did also... you get the person to do that job? Hey, come ride a bicycle backstage <laughs> well, to Carly, power her. She's, <laughs> she's a playwright and she's also a cyclist. So, yeah. that, well, so the, the, the playwright's going to be pedaling the power for a, for a lot of the show. I guess um, that works off her nervous energy. When exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's a pretty cool device that um, a couple of guys that graduated from NYU put together in their graduate program? Yeah, we uh, we met these guys just, we've been looking for somebody to help us with this bicycle generator for months and just keep hitting dead ends and finally met these guys about a week and a half ago and they were like, we've got it, let's try it, we can make it happen. Well, I certainly think it'd be more worthwhile for the unions to pay a, a bicycle dude to power the Broadway <laughs> shows than somebody to sit around and you know pick his nose while he's supposedly pulling curtains. Yeah. <laughs> totally Absolutely. True. I don't know if a lot of those guys could ride a bike for that long, though. <laughs> <laughs> Another cool thing that we did um, to make the production more green is we did, we wiped out a paper program and we're doing an installation art piece in replacement of that and putting bios and, and whatnot on our website instead. Is everybody going to carry the installation art piece to their <laughs> chair? No, but they'll be able to hit the bar in the <laughs> lobby ahead of time and walk around, drink their beer and, and check out the installation that's got all the information but is built out of recycled materials as well. Is this something you've done before with your productions? or No, this is our first, I mean, as you know, I mean, we're 
we're all we're in theater, so we're always buying stuff from thrift stores and and beg borrowing and stealing to make it happen. But um, our last big production, we realized how much waste there was, and the themes of this play really played into that. Um, so we thought this was the perfect jumping off point for us to try to start a green. Um, initiative and it's really worked out but it's so much harder everything takes longer and more strength and um, but it's been so rewarding and the people we've met who've yeah. tried to help us have been amazing yeah we actually um, partnered with American Forest so our uh, audience members can donate a dollar to offset their carbon footprint you know we'll plant a tree um, yeah, and there's a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of chicken and a lot of consumable props in the show. Whole Foods has really come through, and they're helping us with that as well. There's flowers in the show, and um, there's a, a company, Flower Girls, who's giving us the flowers that would be thrown away that we can use instead. So everything is being repurposed or recycled. It's been really exciting. You know, with you know, I think in about a month, everybody in New York is going to have an iPhone. So maybe there'd be a way to beam the program directly into people's iPhones Love as they it, yeah. into, the, yeah. into the theater. <laughs> if you got someone for that, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody's out there listening who can work on an app and, for uh, the yeah, App definitely. Store, a program <laughs> app. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm torn. I understand the need to go green, and certainly those big programs are a waste of time. But, you know, I do enjoy sitting there reading the bios, you know, and, and you know, finding out what's going on with the actors. I'm not, I'm not slamming yeah. you, but I, I think the solution has to be, you know, come up with and you know like so maybe somebody out there will work on yeah. the playbill app or something for I you. hope so yeah, I hope so that would be a great <laughs> you know you addition. end up finding a lot of them in the house and you know that most a lot people, of gum stuck in them exactly well, just because they left in the house doesn't mean they weren't red yeah well that's true and we would pick those up <laughs> yeah. you know straighten them out and use them the next day that's recycling too so <laughs> so uh, uh, what's what's the team surrounding rooftops on here anybody else you want to point out um, well, we have, you know, a, a tremendous cast um, and a wonderful design team. Everybody, I think the most exciting part of this show for me is that the actors as a whole, the roles are all so meaty. Every character's journey is epic in size. So um, it's it's just great to have, have them all. Um, our set designer, Mike McLean, is... Um, doing a great job in the theater right now, finishing up the set. And we've got Pamela Cup, our lighting designer, working on the bike right now. And <laughs> our costume designer is busy, you know. So when you told the lighting out. designer that she was going to have to work with a bike, <laughs> you know, um, they, they did she, like, even blink? She's, well, you know, she's used to, uh, you know, uh, working, I think, with a, a lot more money and uh, uh, um, uh, better equipment in general. But she was excited. She knew that the space anyway um has some power issues and she went full gusto i mean she really been, did and has been very calm surprisingly. yeah surprisingly calm considering that there's definitely the possibility that the lights might just go out <laughs> <laughs> the excitement of live theater you know and um sound and video design there's some video in the show is by union i that's the you know the other designer that's yeah. been working on the show all right, and uh, Rooftops runs from March 5th through the 28th. Mm -hmm. And uh, where, where theater is this at? It's at Clemente Soto Velez in the Milagro Theater, which wow, is Wow, that's on, a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's on Suffolk between Rivington and Delancey. <laughs> and where can people go to find out more information on the show? They can get everything off of our website, www.reccio, which is W-R-E-C-K-I-O.com. All right, Brie, is there a history behind the name Recchio? There is, actually. Um, a friend of ours, David Recchio, passed away and had intended to move up to New York, start a theater company, do the whole bit, 
and um, we named the theater company after him. So honor. he's here. He is. He is. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kim Kressel and Randy Berry, for stopping by to talk about rooftops going green in the Recchio Ensemble. Best of luck with your production. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks, Michael. On the boards. Shortened attention span has mounted five festivals in the past two years, and they're getting ready for their sixth. This time, they are tackling a series of 15-minute shows of musicals. So it's the Shortened Attention Span Musical Festival. With us, we have the Shortened Attention Span producer, Carlos Rivecchio, and uh, one of the authors in the festival, Scott Uria. How are you guys doing? Very good. Thank you very much. So uh, do you want to maybe say your name so people can connect the voice with the, the... the name? I'm Carlo Rivecchio. I'm the producer of the Shortened Attention Span Musical Festival. And I am Scott Uria, and I am one of the writers of uh, one of the shows that's going to be going up. All right. So first off, uh, Carlo, in a nutshell, what's your elevator pitch when you tell people about your festivals? Uh, the most affordable setting for you to get your show up in front of an audience with professional actors, uh, press, um, and and professional setting. Okay, so that's what you tell the writers. Yeah. What do you tell the audience? Uh, you're going to see some of the some of the best up and coming writers in New York that otherwise would not be given an opportunity to have their work shown. All right, that was fast. We just haven't made it to the second floor yet. Basically, I, you know, it's, I've been given that pitch for a while. <laughs> So yeah, now not a longer form. Tell us what what was behind. Why did you start doing shortened attention span? Um, I work at the at the Players Theater in the West Village, um, and the funny part is is there's a black box theater that the new owner had renovated, um, and right towards the beginning it was wasn't really moving. Like people just weren't digging it, you know, and, and not renting it. So I went to the owner and said, "Let me do this thing," because I knew some writers, I knew some actors. I said, "Let me just try," and we just kind of thought it would be like a one and done kind of deal. And then it did well, so we said, "Let's try it again." And then that did well, so we said, "Okay, we've got something going here." And that was kind of it. It was. I wish it was some kind of grand inspiration or or something like that. Like I got a dream, and but it was just kind of an. Hey, let me get some people into the space and let me get some some gigs for for some people I know. And this time is the first one that you've done of musicals. What have been some of the other topics that you've... Uh, every June, um, we do an unthemed festival. It's, we just take works on, on anything. Um, and then in Octobers, uh, we do a horror festival, um, which kind of ranges from everything from Twilight Zone, sci-fi, Outer Limits, to kind of themes on the Grand Guignol. Grand Yeah, which is in blood and, and gore. And then last year in March, um, we did a baseball-themed festival, which was really... Uh, which was very successful. We got like a half-page write-up in backstage for it, um, and then this year uh, we did. We're doing musicals because um, that's kind of where people are saying, "Do that." So we said, "Sure." So Scott, you're one of the the writers uh, for the, one of the musicals in this festival. Yes. What uh, What made you want to participate in this 15 minute? <laughs> and I guess there's going to there's be 12 musicals over three weeks. Yes. Two, so. Well, if it's a 15-minute um, time allotment, I'm, I'm kind of screwed because mine oh, goes about a half an hour, actually. Um, that's so, not a shortened attention span. No, well, I guess <laughs> we can keep our attention for a half an hour. That, that's Well, there are shows. We have, like, about three shows that run, like, ten minutes. Like they're, So we were able to kind of play with the numbers. Oh, okay, your show is only eight pages. No problem. We can put a 30-minute show with you. Um, so that the so that it's the not as rigid as some of these other various really short 
No, it's not. Ten minute it, plays. Festival we don't. Music. We don't shut the lights off on you at eleven minutes. We don't do anything. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what was your question? What got me into? Yeah, what got you into doing a, a short musical for this festival? Uh, well. I was originally I've um, I had a theater company called Boone Theater a while back, and in that uh, theater company we did original work, and we had basically two in-house writers. I wrote a little bit, but did a lot of music for the plays, and you know it, it was always a challenge for this theater company that I was a part of to incorporate music into theater without it sort of, I mean, for me, without it sort of going, going into like a musical style, a classical musical style theater where the actors just, you know, suddenly break out into song to express their thoughts and whatnot. But how, how to sort of you know, inter, interweave or, or weave song and, you know, dramatic action propelling the play forward. So, you know, we experimented a lot with various things in Boone Theater and that when that dissolved, which you know these these companies tend to do sometimes, I um, you know I kept writing music. I have been a musician actually before, before moving to New York and becoming an actor, and uh, and this you know when I when you know Carlo and Christie told me that Christie's a co-producer of the the thing Christie Benanti, when they told me that they were doing a short and attention span music festival, it was a great forum because you know to to, to sort of do something that incorporated music into drama. And, you know, I just kind of went balls to the wall and did an entire rock opera. So everything is singing in, 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 in music and really no, no dialogue. So, you know, that's what got me into it. Well, in fact, interesting, you brought a demo of one of the songs from your show with you today, didn't you? Yes. You want to set this one up and we can maybe take a listen to what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, this, this song is sort of the, it's the first song uh, potentially in the rock opera. And it's basically Susan who is a kind of a, a single girl in the future who basically wants to have a child and is willing to go very, very far to achieve this. Uh, now, I just want to set the stage. It's a dystopian future, I guess you could say, where the individual has triumphed and, you know, uh, the whole family unit has crumbled, the divorce rate is 100%, marriage no longer exists. So it's sort of like to be alone is to be happy. But Susan wants something else, and this is the song that is sort of her desire to start it off. All right, let's take a listen. Mm -hmm. This time I'm gonna make it this time This time you can't fake it this time It's been five long years Nothing's like it appears to be positive this time this time I'll give you a place to live this time it's been too long what am I doing wrong to you
inside of me this time It's my time for a little security My time You'll grow to be A copy of him and me Soon you'll see Another fruitless try. Don't give up and throw your hopes to the sky. Call 1-800-BABY. I'm a little different from your average Joe. There are places I've been and things I know. And one thing's for certain that I know for sure. For you out there, I've got the cure. I myself am from a different scene. And my process is quite revolutionary. There are those who said I'm heaven sent. They're all pregnant. in the making A-okay it will get you shaking because I know that you won't regret why you make the safest 1-800-B-A-B-Y 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 B-A-B-Y That's the end (laughs) (laughs) So now the, the festival starts on the 5th of March Yes. And, and runs through the... The 22nd. Now, how does this work? There's 12 shows. It runs for three weekends. There's uh, there's 12 different shows. Uh, each week, Thursday through Sunday, is four shows. So you could come three times, see 12 completely different shows. Each week... I mean, is it the same shows each... The week first weekend is show A, B, C, D. The second weekend is show E, F, G, H, and so, so on. So if you come so three, over three weekends... You won't see, see the same show if you come to the three different weekends. But if you come Friday and then come Saturday... You'll, you'll see the same show. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get out the word for... Uh, how, uh, had, and Scott, how did you get... You were, you've been involved with Short and Attention Span before, right? Yeah, yeah. I've... Um, been an actor in one of their other festivals. I can't remember exactly which one it was. But it was our uh, first one. It was your first one? It was our very first one. It was, I think it was with Jared's stuff. Yep. I was, uh, yeah, I did a kind of a one-man thing in that. And uh, I've been working with Carlo and Christy earlier in other contexts as well. So that's a kind of a natural progression to, to work with them up here now at Players Theatre. So. One, the, one of the jokes I always, one of the things I always found funny was um, when we did the baseball festival last year was I had a baseball play. I had like two actually. Um, we had a writer's workshop and and everybody, that was one of the assignments. You have to write a play about, and a play about baseball and we did it. They were all part of the festival but I always thought the joke was I had these plays and then the only person whose play wasn't accepted was mine. <laughs> and I'm on the slate but it was just, it's, it's just, that was just kind of how it worked. Like part of it was to get things going for me and, 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 why I'm the last one now. I'm producing. It's like I'm the last one who's who's getting in there. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. and how'd you go about fielding, getting you know, 
composers and music because it's more of a team. It's not just a playwright generally with with a musical. Yeah. You gotta get a whole team behind doing these short. We did um, some of the some of the usual routes. We did backstage to to get the word out. We did playbill.com to get the word out. Um, a couple of websites. I think it was um, playwritingopportunities.com, which is which is a really great place. You can always find um, some information. Um, and then we did a lot of a lot of word of mouth, um, having having done five festivals and then a couple other shows. We we've done like ninety short plays, so um, we've had. Thank you. We've had. I'm just dropping things. By the way, <laughs> um, we've had we've had all those writers and actors and directors and individual producers. So we sent the word to them and and we got some very good feedback and and we even had. Um, Somebody had come to us from a previous festival and said, I know people who would really love to do a musical festival. They'd, they'd, they'd have their pieces. They'd submit it. And, you know, we really think you should do this. So we said, sure. And then they didn't really submit too much. But we got the, the one guy who came to us. He, he submitted and his play is in. Um, a really great lyricist and, and a great composer, uh, Tom Brewitt and, and uh, Dabin, David Dabin. So they'll be a part of it as well. Now, for you, since you do like three festivals a year, um, for any interested playwrights, composers, whatnot that are out there, how can they find out about your submission opportunities? Uh, you can go to uh, www.shortenedattentionspan.com, um, and there's information there. Basically, we'll, we'll put the info up May, about a month or so before the... No, about two months before the festival, which is when we're looking for scripts, and then um, or, or not before, then we'll always have information um, up. That's that's like the best place to check. Wait, so just two months before the festival? No, well, no, no, that was that was wrong. That was wrong. I was thinking of two months. Wow, that's dates. a little. That's fast. Um, no, uh, we'll generally we'll generally put generally put the word out uh, about three months before a festival. Okay. <laughs> Which gives us about a about a month or so to read through scripts, and then a month to get in touch with everybody, and then everybody has a month to rehearse it and get it up. <laughs> so it's also a very quick, you know, very problem. quick process. Yeah, <laughs> it goes fast. So, uh, what's your favorite thing, Scott, about participating in this kind of a shortened attention span setting? Um, <clears throat> well, I guess. Um, my favorite thing about it is that I get to put something up. I get to, you know, I get to act or I'll get to, in this case, write and and be an actor as well. And it's an affordable way to do it. Uh, that's that's the advantage and, you know, the thing, the thing that I do like a lot. Um, of course, with, with something that is so accessible, there are, are also some downsides to it, too. You know, the whole festival thing where... Um, if and I'm sure everybody has this, so it's, it's, it's kind of like a bittersweet um, experience because you can get your work up, but you can get it all sort of under this under like a standard package. There's a lighting grid that's set for everybody. It's sort of the same. Uh, there's a minimal set or no set, and you kind of do it yourself. Which is also I've decided to now think of it as a challenge, and I want to work with that and do what I can to, to you know to use the bare bones. Um, settings and you know and, and lighting and sound opportunity to make something extraordinary or unique. You know, I used to be a you know bastard about it. Carl and I had a lot of discussions about festivals and whatnot. And you know, I used to think that they were kind of like the death of theater uh, because they you know they would be so limiting for uh, uh, an actor or a production. But I've I've chosen to kind of look at it in a different way now that you know to to look at that challenge to actually how can you so how can you make something out of nothing or or a very minimal setup. Mm -hmm. So, 
Now, you said it's an inexpensive process. I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in New York know that when they do a festival, it can a lot of times cost them a $20,000 range. They spend as much as... So when you say it's inexpensive for... I'm sure different you know, authors spend different amounts of money getting the piece through ready, but... One of, one of the things that, we, that shortened attention span prides itself on is that we don't nickel and dime actors, we don't nickel and dime writers, we don't nickel and dime uh, directors. Um, we, we actually just recently did away with even our reading fee for the scripts. We used to ask for, for $10 and then we said, you know what, it's, forget it, you know, we don't even need to do that. Um, <clears throat> there's no participation fee, there's no um, tech fee, there's, there's, no, there's no fees really. Um, basically, if your script is selected, we ask that you rehearse it and show up with the show. We don't need, and we don't even bother you with we don't we're not checking in going are you rehearsing? We we kind of leave you alone to have your own process um, because some people need that, some people don't. But we like to say, okay, you know, we're all adults, we all are professionals, so we'll allow you to do whatever you need to do, and we. Um, we have a good uh, relationship at the Players Theater. Um, if you're in the festival, you can rehearse at the Players Theater for a, a very good discount. The um, the owner is very good to us, and we underwrite some of the rehearsals, so we're allowed to do that. So um, musicals are a little different; they need a little more rehearsing because now you're writing music and choreography and things like that. But we always kind of assume that you could you could put up your 20 minute play if you're doing one of the play festivals for about 150 dollars. I mean that, and of, of of rehearsal time, and that's yeah. and that's we think is a fair amount, about fifteen to twenty hours. Um, but we provide a press agent, we provide postcards to do your mailings, we provide uh, a lighting designer, we provide the theater, uh, we provide the basic furniture and furnishings, um, and so we we kind of feel that's a fair trade off. Now, with musicals, you got one extra element, which would be musicians. How do, do does everybody share a pool of musicians, or does everybody bring in their own accompanist, or, or that's how? That's a good is, idea, actually. <laughs> if we It'd be a hell of a job for a bunch of musicians. If, <laughs> if, if we had the musicians, we we would do that, and more importantly, if we had the funds, we would do that. We would we would just say no problem. I mean, it would be you're right. It would be a hell of a of a challenge for a yeah. musician to do twelve shows in twelve different styles, mm-hmm. um, because there are there. I mean, Scott's plays are rock opera and then I think immediately after him is a show that oh no it's in a, in a previous week but um, there's a show that's just an homage to Charlie Chaplin it's completely silent but there's just kind of the old timey piano playing underneath it the entire thing so I mean those are completely completely different styles um, so basically it's it's you would provide your own accompanist you provide your own musician um, but as Scott said one of the challenges is the theater is only so big, the space is only so big, so you can't have 13 electric cellos and a saxophone and a tuba. You kind of have to go to the basics, you know, drum set. If you need a drum set, piano, guitar, and if you're doing guitar, we really go, go acoustic, do us a favor. Yeah, and that was that was what I was actually considering doing before, you know, before I decided to go with the pre-recorded tracks that I that I made, I was considering getting an acoustic sort of arrangement together of everything, and you know, and then I, I started on that quest and basically got an ulcer over, you know, for like, after like two days trying to figure out, you know, I had to put out X amount of dollars to chart all the music for these musicians and, and, and you know, and have to have this, this person to, you know, this composer slash arranger, this, this girl, girl that I know is very good at it. She couldn't do it. So I made the choice this time around to actually have the, just the music in the background and, you know, m- maybe like monitors 
we haven't talked about that yet. But <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Front, um, Always good. The Springer request right. in an interview that goes oh, on yeah, because right. I can't get mad. I can't go. No! <laughs> so you know to just kind of do that, and then hopefully <laughs> at the fringe we'll be able to have a band. So. I also want mm. a big crystal ball to fly <laughs> exactly. down. Exactly. I want Stonehenge to come <laughs> yeah. down from the roof, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, by the way, and, and you're giving me like 20 comps, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> all, the, all the seats, right? <laughs> know, it's 50. All right, so um, audiences can catch this uh, collection of 12 musicals, uh, like three weekends starting uh, March 5th. And uh, what's ticket information? How can they... Uh, you can go to... I need that uh, card. Yeah, yeah, the thing you've been dropping? And... Yeah, the thing I keep uh, dropping. I uh, you can go to... ShortenedAttentionSpans.com for tickets, or you can call Theater Mania, uh, and the number at Theater Mania is 212-352-3101, 352-3101, yep. Um, and and, and our seats are, what, 120 bucks? $120, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you want to be a special donor. Uh, no, tickets are $18, um, and tickets will be available at the door. It's at the Players Theater Loft, which is at 115 McDougal Street. Uh, it's the third floor. What's that um, between? That's uh, between Bleaker. West Third and Bleecker. Right. If you know where Cafe Wa is, it's upstairs. Yeah. All right. Well, Carlos Rivecchio mm-hmm. and Scott Uria. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for stopping down. Thank to you talk very about much. This festival and best of luck with this endeavor. Thank, thank you very you. much. The call board. All right. For all those in Pennsylvania, the York Little Theater is holding auditions on March 30th and 31st at 6.30 p.m. in York, Pennsylvania, for all roles in their upcoming production of Henry and Ramona to run May 22nd through the 31st, 2009. You can find out more information at our show notes for Volume 307 at broadwaybullet.com. Also, High School Musical 4 is going to debut on the Disney Channel in 2008. The franchise returns to the small screen. Uh, Yes, it's going to be featuring a whole new cast. High School Musical 4 is set to begin production later this year and premiere on on the Disney Channel in 2010. Is everybody really excited for this? I don't know. Uh, And then... uh, Tony nominee Jonathan Groff, Randy Harrison, and Louis Canselme will join the previously announced Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis for the New York premiere of Craig Lucas's The Singing Forest at the Public Theater. In addition, the cast of The Singing Forest will also feature Mark Bloom, Rob Campbell, Pierre Epstein, Deborah Offner, and Susan Porfar. Mark Wynn-Davey directs the production, which begins performances at the public on April 7th and officially opens April 27th. The Singing Forest runs through May 17th. On the boards. Well, the Soho Think Tank is putting on their new production of Red Hair Thomas in what possibly may be the last performance at the Ohio Theater. Uh, we're here to talk with Robert Lyons, the playwright and artistic director for the Soho Think Tank, about the new show and uh, hopefully maybe efforts to save the space. Uh, last minute. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm pretty good. Well, first things first, your show is called Red-Haired Thomas, and I'm upset. I'm red-haired. Is this a slight against people like me? Uh, on the contrary. <laughs> it's, uh, it celebrates uh, people like you with red hair. All right. So what's the Tom show? Thomas Jefferson had red hair. Actually. Yes, he did. Uh-huh. We never see that in photos. Cause... No, he has his white, <laughs> his white hair by that point. But uh, that's, a, that's an important part of the play, actually. So what's the show about? Uh, the show is about uh, Cliff, uh, who is a professional gambler, who uh, loses his stake, his, his gambling stake at the table, and uh, 
and begins a kind of descent into uh, a paranoid uh, dreamscape of his worst fears that uh, involving his wife, his daughter who has red hair, and uh, the newspaper vendor that sells him his newspapers. So what inspired this show for you as a playwright? Uh, well, my daughter has red hair, actually. So it's uh, while it's far from autobiographical in the terms of I'm not a professional gambler, nor am I particularly paranoid, hopefully, um, it did start with uh, the fact that I took my daughter to the bus every day uh, when she was going to school, and then I would buy my newspaper, and there was some connection, as if you see the play, there's the that particular uh, setting is there's an inciting incident that happens in that context that kind of triggers the rest of the play. And uh, so in that sense it came out of my own experiences. A lot of what the play is really about is about uh, fathers' loves, love for their daughters. Even though it's told in this kind of very uh, surreal, skewered way. So that's the, uh, the deep impulse that it came from. Well, you say you're not paranoid, but I understand you think everybody's out to get the Ohio Theater. Well, in fact, everybody is out to get the Ohio Theater right That's now. what paranoid people always think. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, doesn't mean they're not trying to get it either. Uh, so, yeah. so what's the story with this uh, this theater? It's been around over 20 years, hasn't this it? Theater, I've been running the theater for 20 years. Okay, so that's uh, what the, But the theater is actually goes back another 15 years before that, so it's 35 years. So it's kind of a, you know, many people consider it like a cultural landmark. We certainly did. Uh, it was... It existed uh, that long for because we had a friendly landlord situation. The uh, the two men who owned the building uh, founded the theater, wanted a theater in their building, and and uh, made it possible for us to be there that long. Um, the thing that happens over 25, 35 years is people get older, and uh, as you know, if you can imagine Soho 35 years ago to what it is now, the financial pressures, kind of the torque financial torque on the building just kept growing and growing until uh, it was unsustainable, essentially, for them. So uh, in December, uh, just last December, they sold the building, and um, and now we have a new landlord, and he is less interested in having a theater and more interested in uh, uh, maximizing uh, the, the, the income of the building like a businessman would. That's exactly what happened to my community theater in, in Montana that mm -hmm. I used to run. It wasn't running 35 years beforehand, but yeah, it's change up in landlords and, and interests. I think it's a very <laughs> common story in New York. A lot of these theaters, you know, were formed when, uh, when the real estate wasn't so intense and uh, had friendly landlord situations, uh, but eventually like that generation you know, moves on, uh, either literally or figuratively, and uh, and uh, the businessmen take over, and uh, it's a different world. Yeah, on the irony, on my landlord, the irony is 13 years later that space is still sitting unrented after since, he's trying to be greedy. Since yeah. you left. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's poetic justice, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's actually, I mean, that goes to a point. I, I think the reason we're actually still there, uh, we're there through this show. Um, we're actually there through June, probably through August, um, which I had to renegotiate the lease. We're there at a higher rent, but, but still well below market value. 
Um, but the reason that we're able to continue even that far is just because uh, the market, you know, is so bad right now. I think he's looking, he's thinking like, well, he could have an empty space or he could have us. Now, we're not paying market rate, but, you know, I pay something every month, and that's better than nothing every month. So, perversely, the financial situation <laughs> is working to our advantage in a very short-term, small way. <laughs> now, I do understand there's been some efforts to save the space. Is or it, what has to be done to save the space? I, I've seen some stuff floating around on Facebook of you know save the Ohio and various things. Is is this actually something that is possible to happen? Uh, I at this point you know uh, I I wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, <laughs> but save the space is is uh, is an interesting uh, idea because I think that there's a there's a tremendous love for this particular space. There's love for all spaces, but. Uh, over all these years, there's a, there's a great groundswell of, you know, people are upset. What can we do? This is an important, you know, fixture in the New York cultural landscape. Um, and that's the conversation that happens in the th theater community that's actually going to miss the space, the artists and the audience. Uh, and then the other side is this conversation that goes on in the real estate world where it's about how much per square foot and, uh, you know, uh, frontage and you know, this other completely other language, and what we're trying to figure out is how do we, how do we bridge the gap between those two conversations? And uh, we're looking to the city uh, to try and help us as much as they can, and um, foundations, and uh, so we're exploring all the possible avenues of of bridging those two conversations. But it's not obvious at this point how that happens. So producing for 20 years in this space, what, have, what are your favorite things about this particular space that you think set, us, uh, set it apart from some of the other performance spaces in New York? Well, if you've seen it, it's, uh, it's, it is one of the last, like, uh, great old downtown warehouse spaces. It's got the, old, you know, the original 100-year-old wooden floors. It's got, it's got these big columns, which are usually a problem, but in the, in the case of this room, uh, give the room a kind of majesty. It's got a kind of... Uh, uh, theatrical architecture, and so it's a kind of space. It's got these big loading dock doors that open out on the street that we open up. We have a cafe in the front, and we open up these big doors onto the street. It's a Wooster. Um, so there's there's it still feels like when you walk in, you still can see the the factory in the architecture, uh, and so that's very specific and very unique. It's not a traditional theater space by any means. What are some of the favorite shows that, of yours or other people's that you've seen in that space over the past several years? I think that's, uh, you know, favorite shows is hard. I mean, certainly I have some of my own favorite shows. <laughs> uh, but I, it's easier for me to think of in terms of companies because we've had a number of companies that come through there on a regular basis that we have long-term relationships with. Um, and so if I thought about that, I would say the companies like um, New George's, uh, Lafrere Cabousier, International Wow, The Foundry, Target Margin, Club Thumb. Uh, I don't know if you if you follow downtown theater, that's kind of a a list of downtown theater, you know, ERS uh, for the last ten years. So there's been it's it's easier for me. To, I kind of think of it that way rather than particular shows. I do have a particular uh, one of my favorite memories of the space sure. is. Um, we had a uh, a festival of uh, Vaclav Havel 
festival. It was actually Untitled Theater Company was producing it, but we were participating. We were one of the venues, and uh, I, I directed a show in that. But um, while we were doing that, were they, all over the city, they were, all of his plays were being produced, with some of them being at our theater. And, uh, and Havel was in town when it was going on. So he came down and uh, came, ended up, he came down to see the show I directed, actually, and I met him. And then he was so kind of smitten by the whole project, he came down several other times over the course of a couple of weeks. And... Uh, we also went out to the bar with him. We went up to the embassy with him. So basically, we're kind of hanging out with Václav Havel for a couple of weeks. And I just remember one moment, uh, we were in the in the lobby at the concession, and, and he was going up to the concession. So I said, well, let me buy you a beer. And he's like, okay. And um, we're standing there in the lobby drinking beer, and he starts telling me, like, well, he's working on a new play. It's the first new play that he's written since he, you know, um, stopped being the president <laughs> Uh, and he was having trouble getting back into it. And I was just standing there going, oh, my, you know, it's like two playwrights talking shop at the mm -hmm. Ohio Theater as if he was just like one of the downtown playwrights <laughs> that would happen all the time, only he's Václav Havel. <laughs> so that's a memory that definitely sticks in my mind. That was like just a couple of years ago. Well, hopefully Redhead Thomas will be another great memory. And with any luck raining down, maybe it won't be the last show at the Ohio, but... Uh, yeah, it won't be. I mean, just to be clear on that, it's it's you know it could be the last show by Soho Think Tank. Okay. There are shows lined up for uh, May, June, uh, April, May, and June. So there will be at least three more shows. Okay. All right, and uh, Redheaded Thomas runs what dates? Uh, it previews uh, March seventh and eighth. It opens on the ninth and runs through the twenty eighth. And uh, is there a website people can go to for more yeah, information? Yeah, they should go to SohoThinkTank.org. And tickets are on at Smart Ticks. All right. Well, Robert Lyons, I thank you so much for coming down and talking about Redheaded Thomas and the state of the Ohio theater. And uh, <laughs> no, thanks for having me. All right. Best of luck with your further projects. Okay, great. On the boards. Many Tracks Production Company is debuting with their very first show on March 5th, which is The Man in the Newspaper Hat. It is a poetic, dramatic uh, interpretation of the life of Ezra Pound and Elizabeth Bishop. And we have director-producer Katrin Hilby and Angus Hepburn, who is one of the actors playing Ezra Pound in the show. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. Fine, thanks. All right, so The Man in the Newspaper Hat. It's based on a poem. It's kind of a... It's not a straight autobiographical account of Ezra Pound and Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm intrigued. Tell us a little bit about the show. Who should start? It's your show. Okay. Well, um, it's definitely not a biographical play. It um, is based on the poem, and it's about two people, very, very different people and different poets, Ezra Pound and Elizabeth Bishop, as artists and as characters as personalities had very little in common with each other. And they meet in this room. Uh, Ezra Pound was remanded to the mental asylum of St. Elizabeth's uh, in Washington, D.C. after the war, after being declared unfit to stand trial for treason for his uh, anti-Semitic and fascistic rants over Rome radio. And um, he was um, then this declared unfit also because he was one of the literary geniuses of the 20th century and his peers did rally around him also because he was completely ineffectual in what he 
was accused of doing. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Bishop in 1949 was uh, um, consultant in poetry of the, at the Library of Congress. And one of her unofficial duties was to visit the famous and infamous Ezra Pound. So she came, and uh, in real life, actually, she liked to bring somebody along. And he even accused her of that she didn't really want to be alone with him. But in the play, it's those two people sitting there, and she would really like to connect to him from poet to poet and not even go into his political history and or what brought him there or anything else, but from poet to poet, because she did consider him part of her poetic lineage. But of course, um, it can't be avoided, and ranting ensues. <laughs> so Angus, what, what is it like playing a historical figure in a context of not straight autobiography? The goal is to get the flavor of the man as filtered through two things. As Catherine said, you've got um, Haley's play, which itself is filtered through Elizabeth Bishop's poems. Uh, and that is in a political and social framework. I'm not playing absolute Ezra Pound. I'm playing the interpretation of Ezra Pound and the reaction and the interreaction between the two. Um, this is not a normal playwright. This is a poet. Uh, and poets uh, understand the music of language and they're wordsmiths. Uh, so the the play itself is a poem, a sort of blank verse poem, and it's wonderful to work on. In fact, I understand it originally started as a poem. Is that... it, Elizabeth Bishop, after her visits to Pound, wrote um, a poem called Visits to St. Elizabeth. This is the man that lives in the house of Bedlam. And it's it, it's unusual for her kind of poems because it's very rhythmic and pounding because it's based on... It's, it's taken from this is the house that Jack built. It's that rhythm. And she builds her awareness of interacting with Pound and trying to deal with Pound and trying to understand Pound in that position. Uh, when her background is poetry and Pound is, is still anti-Semitic, um, Ku Klux Klan, devotee, um, pro-fascisty... The contrast with that and, and one of America's greatest poets. I mean, they put him there. I don't think they ever actually... <clears throat> they said he was unfit for trial, but they never actually did the tests to prove it because if they had ever done the tests, there was an odds-on chance he would come out as actually being fit for trial. Well, <laughs> now, the difficulty was there that the, so the psychiatric rule book is, at the time, and it still is, but at the time was even more restrictive and strict. And a lot of the personality traits that are considered uh, symptoms are also fairly normal for working artists and uh, poets. Working artists are crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You yeah. have to be. Yeah, and where do you draw the line? Exactly. So um, that was definitely one of the things. And the other thing, to build a case, at the time, the so-called two-witness rule was still very strictly upheld. It was then um, loosened a bit. To, otherwise, they would have hardly been able to convict any traitors, but uh, the two witness rules stated that you'd have had to have two live witnesses of the acts of treason. Now, the uh, radio programs were not live recordings. They were not live broadcasts. They were taped. And he was in Rome, and usually there was only one technician 
president who was Italian, who didn't even speak English. So, and they actually flew a lot of them over to Washington and, and tried to figure out what they actually gleaned from all of that. And they pretty much gave them a nice vacation and sent them back. So it was it was an exhaustive. The the whole examination was fairly exhaustive with doctors, psychiatrists, then his friends who pretty much declared that he was caught in the fog of fascism. And Hemingway said he was actually too college treason was too serious an accusation for what he did. But uh, they really tried to figure out uh, would he stand trial. And Pound wanted for the longest time to defend himself, and only after um, Lord Waha, Waha, what is it? Ho Ho. Ho Ho. And Tokyo Rose were actually executed. That sort of um, scared him into shutting his eloquent mouth. And so he was um, taken to Santa Elizabeth's, and uh, there he actually had didn't have such a bad time. And unto the end, he was never, there was never a diagnosis of him, a complete diagnosis, and he was never, all during those 12 years, never treated for anything. And he had a cushy. I mean, he, <laughs> um, poets would visit him. He was, oh. he, was, he was well known for taking younger poets under his wing. Mm -hmm. Holding um, court. Yeah, and building them up. The Wasteland, T.S. Eliot's yeah. poem, got published because Pound edited it into the form we know it today and hammered on publishers to get it published because nobody right. wanted to touch it. Right. Um, That's the thing that we tend to forget is not only was he an, 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 a really, I mean, he was a, a blazing light of modernism of his own, in his own right as a poet, but he was extremely generous and a generous mentor of a whole generation of poets, as you said. Yeah. Uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, Hemingway, Robert Frost, William Carlos Williams. He'd been involved with, with W.B. Yeats. He was right. Yeats' secretary for a while in Ireland. In fact, I, I was over in Dublin early uh, over Christmas, and, and there was a, an exhibit at the Dublin Library. And one of the things they had was Yeats' poems and people reading them, including Yeats reading one of his own. And the sound of Yeats reading is exactly the sound of of Pound reading that very declamatory sound when Pound would talk like that as he read the cantos. And you see where he got it. I mean, it, it's straight from, from Yeats's very theatrical sound. We're very much into that. A lot of Yeats's crazy ideas you sort of find in Pound. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, it, but, but while Pound too. probably didn't have too much in contact with Bishop until she came to visit him, no. he, um, she was lesbian and her lover was had been one of Pound's um, protégés. Wait, Marion Moore was never... A Wasn't she? No, no, she was a teacher. Or teacher or mentor. Who was the one that... Marion Moore. Oh, okay. She was, I she was, no, no, but she was definitely not uh, a lover of bishops. It's as no. confusing as a soap opera. Yeah. It's the poet's soap it's opera. It's all over the place. Yeah. I mean, his, his <laughs> Pound's influence <laughs> spreads all over the place. That's true. It's yeah. a, it, he was quite extraordinary. But it was interesting that uh, I talked to Alicia Schaefer, our set designer. Uh, he came back from a family visit, and he said he talked to um, his family, and he said the older generation all knew about Pound, and they knew about Bishop because she's still very extensively taught in schools. But the younger generation hardly knows Pound anymore, but they're very, fam well, not very familiar, but they, Elizabeth Bishop rings a bell because she still is part of the school canon and increasingly so. Whereas at the time of the visits, she was an established poet. She was considered a poet's poet. She had 
she had a respected um, position, but she was by no means a celebrity, whereas Pound was. So how, how much of this story unfolds in the course of the, the man in the newspaper hat? Is, is this backstory that you need to know, or is this, is this revealed over the course of this unique kind of... Well, um, it helps. The more you know, it helps, because it is not a biographical, not a historical play. However, we are doing an introduction before the show, uh, sort of a sound collage, and probably I'll, I'll back that up also with my curtain speech. You don't have to know everything to enjoy the play. But what, but what, what does help is if you know who Pound was, ideally who Elizabeth Bishop was, but who Pound was and why he was where he was. I mean, why, what is St. Elizabeth and why he's there? And that's what we're trying to build into the introduction uh, for the audience. Because over the course of readings, we found that that was, everybody was very excited about the writing, about the characters, about everything, but they said, well, we really would like to know more. So we're trying to remedy that. But we're not doing, but, and Haley allow, let, says, okay, go for it, because she really doesn't want to put that in the play, because that would make it a different piece. It's more about the contrast of, of, of two different views of life and two different approaches to art. The poetics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop would work poems for years and years and years, getting them just right. Um, for me, I don't find an emotional appeal to them. I find that the overworking of them has turned her stuff sterile. I think that's why she's popular today, because she's safe. She doesn't threaten you. She doesn't challenge you. I was talking to Haley on, on the, the web <laughs> weeks ago, and I said, it seems to me that good poetry should be uncomfortable. And I don't find Bishop's poetry uncomfortable, whereas oh. I find Pound's poetry uncomfortable. He'll he'll put the knife right in your emotional core. Not necessarily in some of the big philosophical things like the cantos, which are just hard work, but um, some of his short pieces, uh, his ob observing life and observing people and just making sort of ten-line comments, and whoa, those bite. Well, I'm very glad you feel that way because that befits your character. Well, that's right. <laughs> I, 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 have to just, I, I haven't quite worked out how much of that is me and how much I've got into pound. Well, I think it's obviously a little of both because the kind of poetry that we're drawn to um, is also part of who we are. Mm. I mean, I was very, very drawn to pound and I had a real pound phase in my early 20s when I was in school. So I read the big Hugh Kenner book. I read all his poetry. I read quite a chunk of the cantos and prided myself in being really into Pound. Whereas Bishop was terra incognita for a, until I started working on this play. And now I must say I really, really love her poetry. I love the in intricacy. I love the... It's so subtle and but so detailed and every Sand time you look at... Pipers. <laughs> you still have that moose up your nose. I do, I do, I do. I do. No, I, I just love the subtlety and the sophistication of the colors and her emotions are just... They don't pounce you in the face like pounds do. They're, they're, but they're just as complex and just as deep and they... And also, and that is the kind of thing that comes out in the play. He likens a good poem with a watch. She likens a good poem with an artichoke. You know, it, 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 it's intricate, it's, it's yeah. filled, it has layers, but it has a heart. And how, they, how their whole being in life was just really, really different. 
So, and, and you have that in the room. And even though they may argue or debate about uh, the differences in poetry, what comes out are opposing or, or contrasting worldviews and, and really powerful force characters who are in the room. And, and, and Haley's commenting on that um, through the last scene. I won't spoil anything, right. but in the last scene, what comes out is... And she's putting more of a think of herself into it, asking, how do you use the world around you? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you deal with its impact? How do you express its impact? How do you come to terms with what the world is like and how it deals with you? And that's part of the, 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 the concern. Bishop uses uh, images of wildlife. Mm. Images of that's what that's what the sandpiper and the moose thing was all about. Yeah. Because there's one poem suddenly going on, and then suddenly she throws in the sandpiper, um, she, and using the artichoke image that she brings in, a good poem is like an artichoke, uh, which he ridicules. Um, but it's very true. I mean, what she's saying is that uh, the last scene has a lot of Haley in there. Haley Heaton, who's, who writes wonderful poetry Ooh. too. I mean, as a young, she, I mean, she's a young writer, and this is her first play, it's, and it's fabulous. I think she's really a, a great, great talent. But the the last scene is really about how you deal with the world, the world that's being brutal every day, and how you yes, how it impacts on you, and how mm. you have to move. And, and, and handle it. From the actor point of view, this is a wonderful script. Um, I've done a f- fair number of new plays and they tend to get worked on so much that if you read them, they look all right, but when you try and learn them, and it's always the key, is when you try and learn them, you find that they're actually disjointed, unlinked phrases and words, and it's very difficult to learn them. This stuff, because Haley is a wordsmith, she uses language, she uses words, and she creates music with them. Two or three reads, and it's in my head. I mean, it may not be quite precise, I didn't have to spot the details, but it, I find this one very easy to learn, which is always the sign of a good play. I mean, yes, there will be an occasion where you could use they or them, and grammatically they would be more correct, but Haley has chosen to use them. And you look at it and, yeah, she's right. Um, I've requested a couple of changes, and some of which she said, no problem. And others she thought about for a day and said, no, I want it that way. And I go back, and I'm still not comfortable with it, and what that tells me is I haven't found out what she's doing at that point yet. So I have to do my homework and work a little further and push the lines a little further. But, um, it, I, you know, I got so used to sort of fairly tacky plays that read all right, but I could never remember them because the music wasn't built in. It was a line from here and a line from version 5 and a line from version mm. 23, and they really didn't fit. This... If she misses out prepositions, she does it for a purpose. Mm. It's not simply because it's current convention. If um, if she if she misses out, it is not that, and just puts three notes make up a poem. Um, the the bit at the front that you would normally put there is not there for a musical reason. Over the whole flow of the line, you get that art. It's fabulous. It really is. It 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 it. Sounds crazy, but it when you're trying to take a writer's thoughts and convert them to stage and convert them to a character, you understand 
getting in tune with that writer um, and what they're trying to say is often the most difficult part for an actor. Yeah, and that for a director is, of course, in a very different way, but to have a writer like Haley. Mm whose quality of writing is so good and whose, whose intellect or whose brain or also her emotional makeup is so astute that it, it's fun to, it's like a, it's like a rough diamond and you, you sort of chip at it, but you know there's solid solidity down there, so it's worth your while chipping away at it. It's worth your while trying to figure out why it's they and not them. And that, for me as a director, is, is makes every rehearsal, every reading, everything makes it worth my while. And that's one of the reasons why I chose, I do, not only do I want to direct this, I want to make sure nobody else does. So I, I want to produce this. Don't, yeah, we didn't want to, I mean, we got together May or June last year. May. May, just to sit in a room and see what it sounded like talked out. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is, this is quite good stuff, this. And next thing I know, we're having a stage reading of it. The next thing, it's going for a full production. Now, most things, there'll be 15 revisions, uh, then it'll go back. A lot of these things that companies do, they've been working on. There's some poor guys been struggling with this for five years. Um, but no, this one, it's, it's there. <laughs> right. And also, I think it also has a lot to do, I mean, when I cast about, should I go for, for, for production? Um, a lot of artistic directors and other producers told me, oh, God, no, keep it in the stage reading version as long as possible. Um, I come from a European background where, where this whole reading series or going from reading to reading and stage reading to, to workshop to it just doesn't exist. So for me, it's still a very foreign process that plays sometimes spend years in, in this reading limbo. And I go to a lot of readings and also productions where they've been workshopped to to death and to the extent that they're now perfect radio plays. They don't they, they have the perfect script, but they don't need the stage anymore because they've now perfected reading plays. And the other thing is, well, yes, it has to do also with quality, but it's also that I'm I'm primarily I'm a I'm a director turned producer. So for me, uh the third dimension, something physicalized up there. Theater is also a visual thing, and a, and, a, and a play, a drama, is not just written paper. It's not just dialogue. It's not just stage direction. It's, it's a visual, it's a physical entity. So for me, actually, what we're doing now is a stage in the development of the play. It is the first production. It's a showcase. That's the first step. That is its first real test, much more than any reading. And uh, people can come and catch the show starting March 5th, and it runs through April 7th? Is that correct? No, April 1st. April 1st, sorry. April yeah. Fool's Day. <laughs> it's the last performance. And I tell you something else, I'm going to miss this one when it is. Some you're glad to walk away from, but I will not be glad to walk away from this one. And people can find out more information at uh, www.manytracks.org. Correct? Yes. And uh, the schedule and everything. And so, Katrine Hilby and Angus Hepburn, I thank you so much for coming down. And it uh, sounds intriguing. I hope thank everything you. goes great and best of luck. Thank Thanks you. very much indeed. Thank you. On the boards. Two companies are working together to do a rep of 
Tartuffe of, uh, from Moliere and a new musical, Crazy Headspace, at a new, relatively new theater space in town, the South Street Seaport. And we've got artistic director of Dog Run Rep, Jeff Cohen here, as well as the executive director and producer for Abraxas Stage Company, Kendra Lee Landon. How are the two of you doing? Fantastic. Uh, we're doing good. If it wasn't so cold, I'd be doing a lot better. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a cold March day, that's for sure. <laughs> so... Tartuffe and Crazy Headspace, musical and rep. This sounds like an interesting combo. What what was the impetus for running these two things? Well, we've been kind of given the keys to this venue at South Street Seaport uh, by the people who run South Street Seaport. They've been very generous with us. And the last two uh, summers, uh, we've done uh, Shakespeare and, and some, some new work. And then they said, what about this winter? And I thought that we would expand what we do and bring in uh, some really exciting new companies. And uh, Kendra's was first on the list. And uh, we're thrilled to have her and her company and crazy headspace at our space. So what, okay, so we'll get to Tartuffe because I hear there's some different things about this adaptation, but uh, what is Crazy Headspace? Crazy Headspace is a new insane rock musical. Is uh, that the postcard? New <laughs> insane rock musical? Actually, yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what it is. It's, it uh, explores psychological conditions A through Z. Every single song is a different letter of the alphabet, a different psychological condition taken from the DSM-4 manual. And uh, it's every different style of rock music you could possibly think of. It takes you on this amazing journey. And it's, it's really something special and unique. It's not your typical musical theater show. It's really something different. <laughs> so what was the inspiration behind this, uh, this medical cornucopia? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> the, uh, the originator of the piece, Elizabeth S. Davis, is a, a drama therapist. And um, she... But, but she's been working on it since she was a student at Stella Adler at NYU, which I also went to. And uh, it started off as just really thinking of the innocence of our childhood books, the A through Zs, and what happens to those A through Zs once we become adults. And from that, she collaborated with Michelangelo Sosnowitz at, to, to create the music, and thus Crazy Headspace was born. Okay, and I understand that this is a real ensemble piece. It, it is. We have a huge cast with uh, actors and dancers. It's twenty-five people total for, for, for an off-off Broadway production. <laughs> twenty-five people. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. insane. <laughs> it really that's is crazy. It really is. But everyone <laughs> is so special and brings something unique to the piece. I mean, everyone is really so different from one another, and the dancers are amazing. The choreography, Matthew Neff did an amazing job, and we just have, have put together a really special, unique, edgy show. And Tartuffe, what, what's the, the twist or the, of the, on this adaptation? Uh, Tartuffe, um, which for those who need to be refreshed, is uh, Moliere's... Dead guy, uh, yeah. The dead guy's... Um, <laughs> dead French guy. <laughs> it's usually thought of as his attack against the church, which I think is wrong. Um, uh, the church banned the play originally and put him in jail. But that kind of sucker punched him because all he was really doing was uh, skewering the sort of rich bourgeoisie, the middle class, which is really our take on it. So what we've done is uh, I kind of do these adaptations that sort of take the classics and put them into a contemporary American context. And um, 
So hmm. we religious people fooling rich people. <laughs> I know it's it's a hard concept how to you, grasp. How did you do that? It's, it's a hard concept. <laughs> um, so you got this rich guy named Orgon, and you've got this swindler named Tartuffe, who basically rooks him out of all of his wealth and his family and everything else. Uh, That's Wall Street now. Bernie Madoff, anybody? <laughs> so rather than try and catch up with today's headlines, we set it in another Great Depression in the early 1930s. And uh, so we kind of set it in that sort of Manhattan screwball comedy post-Depression or actually middle of the Depression with this great classic swindler uh, taking care of this uh, – this uh, crazy, crazy family. <laughs> now, I understand that the space, the South Street Seaport space, is a, a rather unique and distinctive space in itself. Yeah, what they've done, which is really kind of remarkable in this day of a, day and age, uh, the company that owns South Street Seaport took one of their huge, uh, we're talking about 40,000 square foot uh, stores. It used to be the Liz Claiborne Boutique. It's on so two women levels. who attend theater already know. Where, they already know about it. Yeah. Um, where you are, and they they <laughs> took it off the market, and they basically said we want to sort of help to revitalize um, arts in Lower Manhattan. Are these business people crazy? They are pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> they're. Uh, we're just we were just talking on this episode too about the Ohio you know theater who's right. You know, Who's losing? You know, right, I know. It, it, it's it's sort of it's sort of bucking a trend, and uh, you know, and I, I I'm sure that there are nefarious motives somewhere behind it, but for us, it's really just you know, and the people that we're working with at the seaport, um, I, you know, I take them at their word, which is that South Street Seaport is the best known one of the best-known tourist attractions around the world and one of the least visited for New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. So what they want to do is they want to bring New Yorkers back to the South Street Seaport, which New Yorkers, right. if you haven't seen it or been there in a while, is so beautiful. It's cobblestone streets. It's a completely different scale of building. It's great to walk around. There's great, great restaurants, stores, and now – Great theater. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand. But the space itself. The space is... itself, what, what they did was uh, there's a, um, an atrium that we use as the performance space. And at the center of it is this grand staircase. And the atrium ceiling goes up about 40 feet. So, um, so we've basically just kind of jerry-rigged this atrium space as our off-off-Broadway theater space. And uh, it's almost as though our artistic mission has become to select plays that require a big, beautiful, gigantic staircase. Right. And that's kind of what we've done. So uh, how does the staircase play into Crazy Headspace? Well, for us, you know, Crazy Headspace is so non-traditional that the fact that it's in a non-traditional space serves it. When I first walked in and, and saw the staircase, I, I went crazy because in my mind I'm thinking about the different levels of stages for a rock show and it so serves it. And, and two, the acoustics are amazing. But, and so you have this big, huge you know, space and yet it's so intimate and the audience is is going to be you know so close to the action and and we're not only going to be in their face we're going to be in their lap and it's just going to be it's 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 perfect it's a couple people just stopped reaching for the phone <laughs> the actors are going to be in my lap 
<laughs> but really, no. I love interactive theater, but you know, like, there are a few people out there that like. I don't literally mean that. I just mean that it's so intimate. You know, you, you, you know, when you go to a Broadway musical, you're you're so far away yeah. from everything. And what's great about this is that you're going to be able to witness every nuance of the actor's work. You're going to be able to see every detail of the set. You're going to be able to to take in all the lighting changes and 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 really with with the work. I know of the people that I'm working with uh, for for set design, Tom Lentz and lighting design, Jay Scott. I mean, they're doing a great job of making it a rock show too. And and to be that close, it, it's really something special. Well, one of the great things about Off Off Broadway is use of non traditional spaces. Right. You know, yeah. and audiences, um, you know, they get a different experience. Yeah. Uh, we have um, we have three rows of seating. They go pretty wide, <laughs> but you're never more than you know ten feet away from the actors. And even in a soaring, beautiful space like that, you get you get an experience. It's almost as though you're sitting in a TV studio or a, mm-hmm. or a soundstage, and you're getting to see something um, f- from a much different perspective. Yeah, unless you can fork over the five hundred bucks to sit in the first three rows of any particular Broadway theater that you want, you know. And this is eighteen bucks, so you know it's a, it's a bargain. Exactly. <laughs> now, I understand that there's a, a pretty notable cast in Tartuffe. Yeah, we're really, really lucky. I kind of think that the, um, uh, the 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 bad news on Broadway has kind of blessed us a little bit. Um, uh, we have uh, three wonderful actors leading our cast. Keith Butterball, who, for um, for your listeners who saw Company, um, played Harry. The, he's uh, sorry grateful. Um, he's also been on Broadway playing Phantom and Raul and Phantom, did national tours of them, did the national tour of John Doyle Sweeney Todd playing Judge Turpin. I mean, he's a major Broadway actor, and he's come down to do this wonderful little piece for us. Um, Christina DeChico is uh, the closest thing that I've seen to a surefire rising star since the first time I worked with Laura Linney. Uh, before she became famous. Uh, Christina uh, played Glinda in the National Tour of Wicked. She won a Barrymore Award in Philadelphia. She is, she is, she is one casting decision away from just taking Broadway by storm. You might want to say Wicked a few more times. It'll bring the girls in. Right. Um, did I mention that she played Glinda in Wicked? <laughs> Wicked is that musical that... That, that's on Broadway now that had a national tour, and she played Glinda in it. Um, and then our, the, the sort of the third part of our of our three legged stool is uh, Tom Ford, who plays Tartuffe, and uh, he's he is the the Goyish and Nathan Lane. He is spectacular. His Broadway credits include uh, By Jeeves on Broadway and also the national tour. And he's got major, major regional credits around the country. And, and this is kind of a coming out party for these guys in, you know, in something that's not a musical and something that is, you know, kind of fresh, classic, funny, goofball, screwball, hilarious kind of stuff. And the supporting cast is great. You know, we've got, you know, wonderful actors from some of the best programs in the country and you know, really, really, really blessed to uh, to have these guys coming in and doing this work. All right, so the shows are running in rep starting uh, March 6th? Yeah, starting Friday, Tartuffe begins performances. And then the second weekend, Tartuffe and Crazy Headspace go 
Go head to head, yes. mano a mano. <laughs> and then the battle last, of the shows. Exactly. And then the last week closing the March 29th is just crazy head spins. Correct. Correct. So. Right. We're, we run through uh, April 5th. Okay. And uh, what website can people go to to find out more information? Uh, Dog Run Rep's website, because Dog Run is kind of the umbrella organization doing the festival, uh, is www.dogrunrep.org. Or you can go to abraxastagecompany.com, www.abraxastagecompany.com. All right, well, Jeff Cohen and Kendra Lee Landon, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavor. It sounds like a, a fun pairing in a, in a fun space, and wish you the best of luck. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay. Top of the trades. Well, it looks like Lin-Manuel Miranda is getting yet another big break. Uh, he's getting a new Hollywood deal. The actor-writer who conceived and starred in Broadway's Tony Award-winning musical In the Heights has signed a development deal with DreamWorks Animation. Miranda won the Tony Award for Best Score for writing both music and lyrics to the pop musical set in the Latino neighborhood of Washington Heights. According to The Hollywood Reporter, his inaugural project for DreamWorks is an animated musical feature partnering with high school musical screenwriter Peter Barsoshini. No details about the project have been announced. And surprise, surprise, Marvel Editor-in-Chief Joe Quesada used his Twitter feed to comment on the upcoming musical Spider-Man Turn of the Dark. Quesada, a comic industry icon, excitedly stated that, quote, Spider-Man at its core is a very classic story and structure. Done well, as it will be by Tamor Bono and the Edge, it will rock. So, shock, Marvel Comics is stomping for Spider-Man. As for me, the jury's still out. Uh, I have my doubts, but I'll be the first one to say I'm wrong if it turns into a great musical. Curtain Call. All right, well, that wraps up Volume 307. Remember, if you want to find out more information about anything we talked about on the show, you can just go to our show notes at broadwaybullet.com. Hope to see all of you at our open mic this Sunday, 8 p.m., Hot Comedy Club. More information on the website as well. And uh, kind of a blind item, uh, it's not finalized yet, so I won't say too much, but we're working on a pretty exciting uh, project. And if it comes through like it's looking that way, uh, you listeners will be on the inside uh, during the making of this project. So uh, I will let you know more as soon as I can. But in the meantime, thanks for hopping on board. We'll see you next week. Again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been listening to Broadway Bullet. All the hairs went up on the back of my neck. We're starved, so should an audition come up? We are so ready and rearing. So, Jake Kapsi says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So, it didn't take much, though, when with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. 
you'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.